Podcastle, episode 192, for January 17th, 2012. The Interior of Mr. Bumblethorn's Coat, by Willow Fagan. Rated R for some graphic violence and drug use. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is The Interior of Mr. Bumblethorn's Coat by Willow Fagan. One of my favorite sites to poke around in is called tvtropes.org. In case you don't know what a trope is, allow me to quote the lovely definition the site itself provides. Tropes are devices and conventions that a writer can reasonably rely on as being present in the audience members' minds and expectations. On the site, they identify and taxonomize fictional tropes, and not just from TV, but from literature, comics, webcomics, film, theater, video games, and manga, and a whole lot more. And in the process, though they probably wouldn't describe their work in such highfalutin terms, they are doing nothing less than mapping every last inch of our human cultural consciousness. If alien beings ever show up on our planet, you could just sit them down in front of TV tropes, and when they got up, they'd have our species sussed. Even better, they'd be able to get all the jokes on Family Guy, which might prove an even more effective defense against planetary invasion than the common cold virus. Anyway, there are several interesting elements in today's story that got me surfing over to TV tropes, where I found an entry called Anthropomorphic Objects. This is a super trope with several subtropes, including anthropomorphic food, living statue, living toys, love imbues life, talking appliance sidekick, talking poo, talking weapon, and sentient vehicle. I was quite surprised, however, that the trope doesn't include the one subtrope that today's story inspired me to look for sapient house. Because come on, that one's huge. One example is in the Doctor Who story universe. On Gallifrey, the great houses are grown from seeds and are capable of emotion, loyalty, and memory. Everything inside the house is a part of it, from the servants, which are charmingly known as drudges and look like they've been carved of wood, to the chairs in the library. One time, in fact, the Doctor was in his ancestral family home, the house of Lungbarrow, according to another great time-wasting site, tardis.wikia.com, hiding from someone for some fool reason, and he had to warn the chair not to give him away. Which brings us to sapient furniture, and on that, don't even get me started. I can think of, like, a zillion examples. Cherry the Chair, from Pee-wee's Playhouse, and by association, Globy the Globe, and Clocky the Clock, though I'm not really sure those classify as furniture, more like furnishings. And then there's the Bed Dog, a huge genetically engineered dog trained to function as a bed. That's from one of my husband's favorite books, The Dosati Experiment by Frank Herbert. The good news is that tvtropes.org is a wiki, so I can always go in and add these examples, thus advancing the cause of persnickety cultural pedants everywhere, and just possibly doing my part to thwart an alien invasion someday. If my entry is not there by the time this podcast goes up, then hopefully some on-the-ball podcast listener will go in and do it for me. And if you do, you might want to add a few examples from today's story, just for good measure. Author Willow Fagan lives in Portland, Oregon. Willow identifies as queer and genderqueer, and as such sometimes feels more like a pirate princess than a man or a woman. Willow's fiction has appeared in Fantasy Magazine, Behind the Wainscot, and the year's Best Fantasy and Science Fiction 2011. 
So he has a non-fiction essay coming out in Matilda Bernstein Sycamore's newest anthology, which will be published on Valentine's Day 2012. To read more about Willow's writing and adventures, go to willowfagan.livejournal.com. The story is read by Mar Bell, who by now hardly needs an introduction, but it's my job to give him one anyway. Mar Bell is the beloved empresario of Director's Notes, a multimedia online extravaganza dedicated to independent filmmaking in all its wondrous forms, lengths, and styles. And did you know Director's Notes now comes as an iPhone app? And it's a dessert topping and a floor wax. Director's Notes does it all, and you can find out more at www.directorsnotes.com. Enjoy the story. The Interior of Mr. Bumblethorn's Coat by Willow Fagan Mr. Bumblethorn slept through the morning, as he usually did, rising from his dry-as-dust bathtub just after noon. He stood in the weak light of the shaded window, his massive blue coat rumpled but still imposing. He did not even remember getting into the bathtub the night before, much less fallen asleep in it. He yawned and shook out his arms. An antelope or a gazelle, tiny as a beetle, tumbled out of his coat sleeve and splattered on the floor below. Mr. Bumblethorn studiously ignored this. Bleary-eyed, he walked across his tiny apartment to rummage through the cupboards, finding no food except some stale crackers. Worse, his water flask was empty as a thimble. He held the thing upside down for a full minute, and not a drop appeared, not a whiff of moisture. Mr. Bumblethorn sighed heavily. Into the blank space of his empty stomach, memories began to flow like saliva. Once, adoring folk had thrust gifts of cheese and honey cakes at him wherever he walked, through the streets of Grand Abador, through the humble thoroughfares of nameless hamlets. Finger shaking, Mr. Bumblethorn rolled himself a fat spliff of red leaf. No matter how little the peasants had, they shared their suppers with him and refused any offer of payment. Damn it, light already. After all, he was, ah, there it was, that sweet smoke filling his mouth, translating the stream of memories into a language as meaningless to him as the clicking prayers of the insectile priests in their hive temple on Wincleft Avenue, his old life grown as insubstantial as their flowery incense drifting away in the wind. Pleasantly hazy, in search of a more expansive view, Mr. Bumblethorne pulled down on the window shade, a membrane as thin as his own eyelid. At his touch, the shade twitched, and Mr. Bumblethorn's skin answered with its own shudders at the unpleasant reminder that the building he lived in was alive, was Towercran. The window shade crept up and disappeared into its pouch above, and Mr. Bumblethorn confronted the naked window. Was it an eye? Was it looking back at him? Mr. Bumblethorn looked away, held his breath, tried to determine once more if the walls were breathing, were expanding and contracting rhythmically ever so slightly. This was a game he never won, even when he was sober. The light coming through the window was bluish, and Mr. Bumblethorn felt as if he were underwater, as if at any moment a fish might swim by, as if he could feel the currents tugging at his long coat, tugging so incessantly that he felt dizzy and unsteady on his feet. No, Mr. Bumblethorn, you were simply a little too high. So unsteady that he grabbed the window frame to hold himself in place. He raised his head in surrender and gazed out of the window at the reality of the city he lived in. Fleet City. Even near noon, the sky was lit up hardly at all, as if the pale blue sun were pouring light and light and light into a vessel so vast that there was no hope of ever filling it. 
Tower Cren rose up into the desolate bowl of the sky, Tower Cren after Tower Cren, clustered near his own building and standing far away at the edges of Fleet City and filling up the middle distance as well. The Tower Cren shone red and scarlet, somehow snatching up enough of the meagre light that they gleamed bright, their scales glittering like the segmented metal of armour. No, Mr. Bumblethorn would not think of that. He looked down to the streetworm far below, flat and black with little yellow ridges running along its spine, blurring from this distance into a single line. Up and down the streetworm, the motor cren clattered and the lamp cren glowed, and the many varied denzines of Fleet City walked or glided or skittered or swam through the air. So many strange creatures lived in this city with him. Mr. Bumblethorn did not even know which were native and which were emigres like himself. He knew as little about Fleet City as possible. It was like a living book of symbols written in a language of flesh and movement, a language he could not read. The meaninglessness was a comfort to him. Eventually, the haze receded enough that Mr. Bumblethorn became aware of the hunger gnawing at his stomach, the thirst scrabbling at the back of his throat like clawed feet. He would have to go out. He picked up his key, which was large and knobby and white. He took one last hit from his spliff for courage. He brushed off imaginary lint from his long, dark coat. The keyhole was dark and warm, like a deep mouth. Mr. Bumblethorn rooted the key around in it, eyes carefully averted. The walls of the keyhole responded to the touch of the key, shuddering and grasping until the whole door vibrated and let out a soft, whistling sigh and swung open. The space where the door met the wall, exposed now, was red and wet. Mr. Bumblethorn stepped through quickly. The door closed with a squishing sound. Mr. Bumblethorn held the key out from himself carefully, away from his coat. Something dripped from the tip. Down on the street worm, the air smelled of sulphur and citrus, cedar and unnamed spices. A fine spray of pink sand blew into his face. Someone called out, Maps! Hot off the presses! Fresh maps of the latest migration! But Mr. Bumblethorn had no money, no gold bloom tea or even water. He had his blood, but the map seller would not take that. He would have to find a florist. He scanned the moving crowd for familiar shapes. There was the two-headed horseman in his fancy clothes, checking some kind of spherical instrument on a chain without pausing in his long strides. There were three of the blobby orange things with wings like rusted yellow knives hovering above a cart selling fruit. Mr. Bumblethorn looked away. Something about the shape of the flying things brought bubbles of nausea to his stomach. On the other side of the street worm, near the dark entryway of another tower cren, which hung open like a giant's gullet, strolled an orange-skinned woman. She must have been obscenely wealthy, for she wore a dress made of enchanted water. As she walked, the water fountained and swirled in intricate patterns over her sunset skin. Behind her trailed three tame ghosts on tethers, bobbing up and down in the wind like balloons. The ghosts were dolled up with ribbons in their cloudy hair and rouge on their flimsy cheeks, but Mr. Bumblethorn knew that if some destitute, such as himself, so much as tried to squeeze a droplet of water from that fountaining dress, the ghosts would be on him like wild dogs. Distracted, Mr. Bumblethorn bumped into a stopped motor cren, a tiny furred creature with huge eyes, standing atop the motor cren's smooth red shell, scolded Mr. Bumblethorn with a series of clipped chirps, making an incomprehensible sign with its delicate, naked fingers. Mr. Bumblethorn shook his head and backed away. He had seen such creatures before, riding on other motor cren, but refused to consider what this might mean or imply. 
In the noise and blur of the street worm, the jostling, ever-moving alien crowd, Mr. Bumblethorn's high had faded to a dull headache, a slight membrane between his skin and his thoughts. Slight, but enough, with the chaos of the street itself. He had learned, in his time in Fleet City, that the one thing the city could be relied on providing was an endless stream of distractions, of bewildering sensations. By the time Mr. Bumblethorn found a florist, his throat ached with thirst, his feet throbbed with each step, and he was worryingly sober. He looked at the florist shop, and it was disconcertingly familiar, a place he was returning to, a place he remembered, or, at least, a place indistinguishable, to his eyes, from the other florist shops. There was a pavilion carved from the rocky, jeweled shells of a slumbering mound turtle, holding a wealth of flowers of all colours and shapes and sizes, which were framed by four pillars of red stone and wrapped around on three sides by heavy curtains rich with pattern and gloss. As Mr. Bumblethorn walked up the ramshackle stone staircase besides the mound turtle, the florist craned its long neck to peer at him. The florist had a white head like a bird's, with a prehensile beak. Its long neck ended in a nest of feathers, motted grey and black and white. These feathers sat on broad, furry shoulders on a body like a Sasquatch's. The florist had two legs, thick as tree trunks, and no other visible limbs. In the centre of its furry chest, there was a broad, black opening like a mouth without any teeth. Protruding from this moor were six wings, plastered flat against the chest like the petals of pinwheel, alternating between white and black. The florist clicked and squeaked at Mr. Bumblethorn. It did not recognise him. I'm sorry, I do not speak that language, he said. At the sound of his voice, a cluster of dark red roses turned towards him. Mr. Bumblethorn started at the sight of eyes in the centre of the crimson layers of petals. The florist tried again, this time in a voice like mournful singing arising from beneath water. Mr. Bumblethorn shook his head. Good day, the florist said. Tell me why you've sought me out, and we shall see if I can meet your desires. I need to make an exchange, blood for water. Such a commonplace request, the florist tutted. Are you certain you have no more extravagant dreams? A mottled spy wing, perhaps, to trace the steps of your unmet love through these shifting streets. A heart's black bulb to hold your grief and nightmares till Fleet City reaches... Please, Mr. Bumblethorn said, clenching his teeth. I have no money and I'm very thirsty. He who drinks his wealth in haste will thirst in leisure. Mr. Bumblethorn hated this platitude, but he did not want to risk offending the florist. As far as he understood the arcane laws of Fleet City, only florists were allowed to exchange blood for water. Water. The shape the word made in his mouth, in his throat, was a paroxysm of longing. He held out his arm and pulled up the sleeve of his great blue coat. Just take it, he said. First, your name, the florist said. Mr. Bumblethorn stated his name. The florist clucked and slid its head inside the hole in its chest. The six wings fluttered gently, as if half-heartedly trying to escape. After a moment, the florist's head re-emerged. Our guild records indicate that you've already exchanged your blood for water twice this month. I will not take more blood from you so soon. I can't have your death on my beak. I couldn't afford the care and feed of your ghost. Mr. Bumblethorn felt as though he might faint. His tongue was like paper in his mouth. Could you possibly lend or give me water? I need... Have you not heard the words of the wandering sage? To give charity is to toss poison into the mouths of children. But I'm a reasonable bird beast. Surely you must have something else to sell. Reluctantly, Mr. Bumblethorn opened his coat. There was a world inside. 
The interior of Mr. Bumblethorn's coat teemed with life and movement, as if it were an intricately detailed model of a continent, brought to life and hung suspended and sideways, its own gravity still somehow intact. The rivers meandered or rushed according to their temperament through the miniature landscapes. Specks of birds flew vertically from tree to tree or wheeled above the mountain peaks. Smoke drifted horizontally from pencil small chimneys on cabins and manors. People as tiny as toys worked the fields and walked the streets of towns and cities, oblivious to their strange circumstances. On the edge of this landscape, were great black maggots chewing away at trees and valleys and towns, slowly consuming the very fabric of the world. Two or three of them had grown so bloated they could no longer move. Shadowy threads of webbing encased their blobs, indicating an unimaginable chrysalis might be underway. Seeing these maggots, Mr. Bumblethorn could not help but remember their name. The Shadow Scraw. And with the single incursion, the dam burst and outswept a flood of memories rancid licorice scent of shadow crawl's gummy purple-black blood eyes open nothing but darkness head throbbing where the dragon newt's tail had struck rubbery shudders of monstrous flesh wrenching his sword back and forth the blessed sword a glow white light piercing the black of his eyes his mother's tears goodbye the salt of the mermaid's kiss eventually narrative emerged he had been a hero his name had been Lavender, Lavender the Swift and Sure. He had rescued a prominent mare's dim-witted daughter from a dragon ute and had been summoned to the Queen's Hall and feted as a hero. The Snow Regent herself had whispered thanks and praise into his ear. The next day, while he slept late, still pleasantly drunk in his slumber, word had come. The son of a governor of some far-flung province had been killed by one of the Shadow Scrawl's fearful servants. That night, the Queen's Council had unveiled a convenient prophecy which declared Lavender chosen defender of the realm and rightful bearer of the Blessed Sword, a relic which had been gathering dust in a crypt for nearly 400 years. Armed with this fearsome weapon, he had outwitted and killed hundreds upon hundreds of the minions of Shadow Scrawl. He had proven victorious, at least through the first leg of his quest. He made his way to the cavern at the heart of the world, where the voice of the light which surrounded him there had said, now that you have beheld the crown of all, the world is yours to command. You can kill one of the gods in this cavern and take their place for your own, or you can don the armour of the sun and claim the chance to finally purge the world of Shadow Scrawl's deadly infection. Know this, if you do not so, the Shadow Scrawl will eat away at the world until only a rind remains. But if you fight them, only your death blood will cleanse all their blight from this world. Lavender stood filthy and exhausted, the swells of light nearly overpowering his ability to think, to receive and form words. Nonetheless, the last words echoed in his mind, this world. This world, he said. There are others, oh yes, many worlds, like drops of dew caught in a spider's web, like bubbles in a glass of brew wine, like links of silver in a long necklace. If this world is mine to command, can I order it to leave me alone? Can I escape to another? Motes of colour, like tiny crystalline fish, rushed and twinkled through the light, echoed by rippling tinkles, like the ringing of a bell shattered across time. Was the crown of all laughing? You are thoughtful for a warrior, Lavender, swift and sure. You can indeed journey to another world, but you can never leave this one behind. It is bound to you, and you to it by birth and prophecy and blood. Blood. He was so tired of blood, of killing, 
of the weight and heft of the blessed sword in his right hand, of the terrible burden of so many hopes invested in him, in the strength of his arms, the endurance of his heart, the swiftness and surety of his killing blows. The worst had been the little girl, her eyes blackened from the kiss of the shadow scrawl. If he did not kill her, she would screech with her tumor tongue and call down the gnats on her town, dooming half of it to death or worse. There was no choice. But when he sliced through her tiny frame, something died or broke in him too, and the faces of her parents afterward. He can never scrub his memory clean of them, no matter how hard he tried. I do not want to fight any more, he said. I want to go away, go somewhere where no one will expect me to be a hero, a killer. Very well, the light replied, and flashed white before ebbing away. When Lavender's eyes cleared, he found that he was no longer in the cavern at the heart of the world, but in the grassy field just outside the vast honeycomb of tunnels. He stood under the night sky and laughed. I'm free! And then the star spoke to him in the voice of the crown of awe. Perhaps, but though you can leave, with each word a star winked out of existence, this world must shrink to accompany you. And then all the stars streaked down and disappeared, and then the sky itself began to shrink and fall, sweeping up mountains and islands and rivers in its night-blue folds, shrinking and falling, gathering and concealing all the history of the world, all the times and travels of Lavender the Swift and Shore, the memories curling up into the places of their occurrence like roots retreating, the places themselves shrinking, the whole world falling, wrapped around by sky, until it hung from his shoulders as a long, dark, heavy coat. He stood in the street worms of a strange new place, a city full of shining reptilian towers. Before him, amid the clatter of the varied crowd, perched a bird with a single eye and a long lizard's tail. Excuse me, he said to the bird, I seem to have forgotten my name. Well, everything. Would you be so kind as to tell me who I am? Bumblethorn, the bird squawked. Bumblethorn. In a flurry of green and blue feathers, the bird took off. Mr. Bumblethorn took his first tentative steps in Fleet City. Mr. Bumblethorn could hardly stand to have the florist see the interior of his coat. His clothes, revealed to the daylight for the first time in years, were a ragged leather breastplate and coarse wool leggings. He looked up at the florist, at its strange blue bird eyes which gave away nothing. Please, Mr. Bumblethorn cried, just take something, take this forest, Mr. Bumblethorn gestured towards the interior of his coat without looking at it. Take these hills, he swallowed, and his throat was so dry, it felt as if one side of it was scraping against the other, rough and caved in. Take the whole city, I don't care, just take something and give me some blasted water. The florist cocked its head this way and that, and rippled the edges of its stationary wings. But Mr. Bumblethorn, it looks as if you already have some water. The florist pointed with its beak at the rivers running through the world inside Mr. Bumblethorn's coat. Mr. Bumblethorn felt dizzy and faint, a sudden fear stabbing through him, like a fuzzy knife. What if he collapsed here, in front of the inscrutable florist? Here, the florist said, passing him a tall cup. Mr. Bumblethorn closed his eyes and moved the cup towards the river. As his hand neared the surface of his coat, it began to tingle and felt heavier and heavier as if the weight of the entire world were pulling down on it, as if he were falling through the sky, plummeting downwards. Vertigo spiralled behind his eyes. Then the lips of the cup touched the rushing water of the river and his fingers slid through the wetness and he pulled up. His arms swung back fast, propelled by momentum, and he opened his eyes with a jolt. 
The shimmering scales of the tower crane were like slippery rainbows to his eyes, which would not stop sliding down the living buildings along the yellow lines of the street worms, back up another tower crane, jumping from talon tip to talon tip and down again. Mr. Bumblethorn tore his gaze away. The still pool of water in his cup was calm, a respite. It was easy to ignore the few flecks of fish swimming through the precious liquid. It was a relief. He tipped back the cup, careful, even in his state of extremity, to limit his intake of water. He poured the rest into his water purse. When he had finished, he closed the coat with a shudder, then buttoned each button. Are you sure, he said, not looking at the florist, that there's nothing in my coat that you want to buy? I deal exclusively in liquids and flowers, the florist said. Mr. Bumblethorn wanted to shout out, Take it, take the whole damn thing from me, for free, but he did not. Now that he had water in his purse, merchants flocked to him as if they could smell it. He needed to find some red leaf, and fast, his hands shook like branches in a furious storm, and the only safe path through his thoughts was like a slither of a ledge around the bottomless pit which had been revealed when he opened his coat. He would not trip, would not tumble, would not allow his eyes to wander from the security of this inner wall. He recited recipes and relived the experience of his favourite Fleet City foods, the tender, subdued sweetness of solemn cakes, which only ghosts could properly make, the heady, thick brew offered for free by the insectile priests of Wingcliffe Avenue, the simple, savoury stuffed birds sold by the catkin. Ah... Here was someone selling red-leaf joints, a creature with its face on top of its head and long green tentacles dangling from the edges of its scalp like willow branches, animated and ending in tiny hands. After he inhaled the earthly red smoke, breathing it in like the scent of a lover he had not seen in far too long, he imagined himself floating above the bottomless pit, serene. He floated through the street worms and, despite the jostling crowds, the many-shaped appendages and bodies which brushed against him, nothing could touch him, nothing could reach him in his mind. The rich scents and sounds and images of the city flowed over him like water, slippery and clean, until one caught, a green-skinned, horned being, stabbing a creature of its same kind, either with a sword or a sharp metallic arm, the second being writhing in apparent pleasure as bright yellow liquid oozed from the newly opened hole in its flesh, its movement grown increasingly frenzied as the first being bent down to lick up the goo with a tongue convoluted as a flower. Seeing this, Mr. Bumblethorn could not help but think of the times when he himself had stabbed his sword into the flesh of misshapen beasts and, with this thought, he plunged downwards into the abyss like a balloon sucked in by a tornado. The blood of the Lice Queen pumping out of her torn open leg, her lips still smiling obscenely, the crown of white symbiotes on her otherwise bald head dancing like drunken, dying children. The girl, oh God, the girl, how she squeaked when he sliced through her, how her chest slid from off her torso. Scrambling, scrambling to get away, someplace safe, anywhere, torso, safe, torso, the arms of Leonine the archer wrapped tight around him, the scent of cinnamon and sweat, the soft touch of his long golden hair, a blessed relief like a curtain. The veiled faces of the palimpsene as they chanted and scrubbed the tiles that were all that remained of their temple, as if it mattered now to restore the cleanliness of white stones to wash away the muck. Blood, always blood blood circling down the drain in the bathtub, in the ivory bathtub of the Lord of Abador, his first true cleanse after months and months of fighting, so that the colour of his own skin came as a surprise to him, a revelation. Bumblethorn, 
Bumble, Thorn. He had not seen the bird since his first day in Fleet City. He did not know now if the bird was speaking to him or if Bumblethorn was simply its call. Before he could struggle through his dizziness to ask, another voice spoke to him. Bald monkey, brown skin, desires to trade seven drops for sweet, sweet roast rumba? The speaker peered at him with a chimpanzee's face over a wispy body of smoke and leaves, the suggestion of a robe. Yes, Mr. Bumblethorn spluttered. I do desire to trade. The roast romba filled his mouth with its sinewy texture and taste of smoke and pears rooting him to the present, the pleasant pressure of food passing down his throat. He walked as he ate, buying more food each time he ran out, so that he made his way back to his apartment on a wave of chewing and swallowing. Mr. Bumblethorn could not sleep that night, no matter how much red leaf he smoked. When he lay down and closed his eyes, the shapes of his past, of the world before, bobbed up and threatened to play out their scenes, which were old and new at once, but most of all, threatening. He tossed and he turned, imagining that he could feel the mountains and the towers and the trees poking into his back, the gruesome popping of peasants and lords crushed beneath him, chickens and donkeys and dragon newts, and worst of all, the gnawing of the shadow scraw on the bare skin of his wrists. Mr. Bumblethorn shuddered and opened his eyes. He could not bear the interior of his own mind. He got up out of bed, shook his beetle lamp awake, and set about finding a distraction. He had only one book to his name. A curious story told in pictures and words, the pages divided into boxes. In the story, there was a man with a mask and antlers, who kept dying and rising again, whose flesh, if consumed, could cure almost any illness, who could use mirrors as gateways between worlds. This man was being pursued by a cabal of mechanical creations who threw razor-edged gears and who could combine and reconfigure their forms, trading body parts like articles of clothing. They chased him across worlds many and strange, despite the masked man's continued pleas to simply be left alone. Finally, the masked man found his way to the great clock which stood at the centre of all worlds, like the hub of a wheel, and confronted the creator of his mechanical foes. The man, or God, was so old that his beard flowed throughout the clock, catching in the gears and causing time itself to glitch and stutter like a nervous child, and so lonely that he cried and cried at the sight of the masked man. The masked man gently trimmed the old man's beard and watered the old man's many houseplants, and they sat and drank tea together. In gratitude, the old man dismantled his mechanical creations, and the masked man was finally allowed to die in peace. Mr. Bumblethorn read the book three times in a row, and was halfway through his fourth reading, when the periwinkle light of dawn fell on the pages. He looked up, normally slept through the mornings. He did not want to watch Fleet City's migration, but he stood up as if hypnotised and walked to the window. The room lurched to one side and Mr. Bumblethorn had to grab hold of the window frame to keep his balance. The shade flew open, an alarmed eye. Mr. Bumblethorn looked out. All across the skyline, Tower Cren were rocking back and forth, uprooting themselves from the dirt, exposing bony appendages curved like fangs or claws. Soon, Mr. Bumblethorn knew the Tower Cren would race across the land like obscenely tall crabs, leaving behind a pink, blowing desert and running towards places as yet unspoiled, towards the silhouette of a forest and the hint of a river that Mr. Bumblethorn could make out at the horizon. Soon, but not yet. The Lamp Cren too were pulling themselves out of the pink sand, scuttling towards the waiting motor cren and fitting their sockets together smoothly. A few inhabitants, not safely holed up in their rooms within the tower cren, raced to get home in time. 
the mound turtles yawned and stretched their jeweled legs and began to trudge forward. Finally, the street worms puffed up and pulled away, rolling and squiggling across the suddenly naked sand like great big caterpillars. It was then that Mr. Bumblethorn realised how much the street worms resembled the shadow scraw, those malignant maggots. No, he would not go back there. He scrunched his eyes closed. He curled up in his bathtub, his coat wrapped around him like blanket. He felt like a parasite, tiny, trapped within a great lumbering beast that moved with terrifying speed and carried him along. He may have chosen to come here, to Fleet City, but now that he was here, the city itself would choose where he went, and when and how fast they would go. And welcome back. Now I have to wonder, what's in your coat? And whose coat are we all in? And what horizon will this city migrate to next? Or Podcastle, I should say. Well, how about feedback, this time for Sylvia Moreno-Garcia's This Strange Way of Dying, read by Marguerite Croft. A story about the Mexican Revolution, Dia de los Muertos, and falling in love. Infinite Monkey said, This struck me as a classic piece of Latin American magical realism, especially in the way Georgina is more afraid of her mother's reaction than of death himself. Reminded me of Like Water for Chocolate, 100 Years of Solitude, as well as being a good story. Reminds me of the breadth of what we call fantasy. Swamp liked it saying, marrying death could have its advantages. I kept waiting for death to explain all the things she would be able to do and share with him, but it never happened. And she didn't even ask. I agree that Georgina was a weak protagonist in the way she didn't really have any idea of what she wanted and was quite flaky, but the concepts of this story really won me over. I liked that there was more than one death and that they were considered siblings. Thanks so much to everyone who left comments on this story. We'd love to hear what you thought of this week's tale. Migrate on over to our forum at forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought. But before you fly, fly away, consider heading over to podcastle.org and making a donation. Your donations keep us soaring through the skies, telling stories to each city we visit, which means it's how we pay our authors. If you can't donate, please blog, tweet, tell a friend, or write a review for us on iTunes, or wherever you download podcasts from. Thanks. Speaking of people we'd like to thank, Kenneth Schneer is our featured donor of the week. Ken's a pretty good writer himself, and he told us that Podcastle has given him countless hours of enjoyment, and also is the primary way he keeps up to date with fantasy fiction these days. Thanks so much for listening, Ken. That means a lot. Normally I'd give you some spiffy title, but all I've got is this ratty old coat. You can have that instead. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Podcastle's made up of assistant editor Anne Leckie, sound producer Peter Wood, co-host M.K. Hobson, forum mods Aussie Cat and Talia, and your editors, Anna Schwind and Dave Thompson. That's me. On behalf of all of us, thanks so much for taking another journey with us this week and letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next time with a tale of bootlegging and steampunk, courtesy of Patty Templeton. Until then, take another drag of the red leaf. It's on us. See you in a week.
Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Salman Rushdie said, Exile is a dream of a glorious return. Exile is a vision of revolution. Elba, not St. Helena. It is an endless paradox, looking forward by always looking back. The exile is a ball hurled high into the air.